Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord, please be seated. pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the blessing of being able to gather together in your name as your people. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word, that you would bless the preaching of your word. May it go forth unto the conversion of sinners and the edification of your people. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way. May it be your truth that is spoken and nothing but. Lord, may your word accomplish its purpose for which you sent it. Lord, move by your spirit to open our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds. May we be built up, and may you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the last few Lord's Days, we've been looking at the mission of God in the world, uh, and the resulting conflict that this will bring for Christians as we seek to engage with the idols of our day. For those of you who are visiting, our usual practice is to go through books of the Bible, but now for the summer we're touching on these, these topics here. Uh, so engaging with the idols of our day, Christ is Lord, he has established his kingdom, and his kingdom is spreading to fill the entire world. We, as his people, have been commissioned to go out and to bring Christ his inheritance, that is, to disciple the nations, uh, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Now this mission, of course, will bring us into direct conflict with the kingdom of darkness as we seek to demolish the many strongholds that the enemy has established in the world. And so one of the side effects of this cosmic conflict is the reality that if we are faithful to Christ and to this mission that he has given us, we will be hated. Now this being the case, it is quite important then that as the church we would know how we ought to respond when we are hated. And as it happens in God's wisdom and kindness, he has given us significant guidance regarding this question in his word. The Lord Jesus himself spent a good deal of time teaching his followers on exactly this question. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Uh, we'll read those together. Pastor Josh has read for us, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's unpack this. Blessed are you. D.A. Carson writes that this phrase, blessed or happy, as some translations have it, describes not a state of inner feeling on the part of those to whom it is applied, but of blessedness from an ideal point of view in the judgment of others, close quote. So blessed are you means you are in a good position. You are in an enviable 
position, a, a position in which all people should want to be in. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm willing to guess that to truly embrace this and believe this and feel this way would require a fairly significant shift in thinking for most of us. I, for one, generally want people to like me. Right? What most of us would consider, what would make more sense to us, would be, we'd say, uh, blessed are we when others speak well of us, when others are kind to us, and when others do good things to us and for us. That's what we consider to be the enviable position. So it requires a shift in thinking for us as we come to the words of Jesus that says basically the opposite of that. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you. Now, before we go any further in our text here, we need to jump to the key phrase at the end of verse 11. Notice Jesus says, uh, You are blessed when people utter evil against you falsely. Falsely and on my account. So we need to state from the outset that it is no blessing and there is nothing enviable about someone who has evil spoken against them when they deserve it. Right? That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Some bad reputations are quite properly earned. There is no virtue and no blessing in having a bad reputation because you're just a nasty person. It is entirely possible for someone to act like a jerk, treat people poorly, then slather over their bad behavior with some Bible verses, and then claim that they are simply being hated for the sake of Christ. We must not do this. We must not develop a martyr complex where we would go out and pursue hatred, that we would try to anger people. We need to understand the gospel is offensive enough to the sinner, and so we do not need to add to the offense of the gospel by being needlessly offensive. Now at the same time, as we've often discussed, we also can't let the world be the ones who are defining what is and is not needlessly offensive. For if we followed their standards, we would be forced to celebrate sin and to put the Bible away altogether. This question therefore requires maturity and godly wisdom. So understand that not every bad thing that could ever be said about you is automatically because of your faith. We must careful, carefully note here that the blessed man Jesus speaks of is the one who has people slandering him, persecuting him, and speaking evil falsely, and on the accounts and for the sake of Christ. As Jesus did teach his disciples, those who truly follow him will face opposition from the world. Turn with me to John 15, verse 18 and following.
John 15, starting verse 18, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now Jesus refers to the world. What does he mean? Uh, in this case, he's talking about the present evil age. I think of how scripture uses the term worldly, right? We follow after worldly passions and desires. It's a synonym for fallen. And so the world, in this sense, is the collective system of unbelief and rebellion. It is those who do not belong to Christ's kingdom. They belong instead to the world. And as Jesus explains, this is the reason for the hostility that his disciples will face. They are no longer of the world, but have been chosen out of the world. Christians are citizens and ambassadors of a rival kingdom. And Jesus tells us then to anticipate and expect hatred from the world. If the world hated Christ, the world will hate us also. And we see here, this hatred is rooted in the cosmic conflict of these two rival kingdoms. If we are faithful ambassadors, if we take seriously our task of discipling the nations, if we strive to use our divinely powerful weapons to destroy the strongholds of the enemy, taking every thought captive to obey Christ, we can and should expect pushback and opposition from the enemy. And so one of the most important points for us to understand as we seek to learn how to respond to be hated is to first get this question of understanding, why are we hated? If we can grasp this, I believe it will help prevent us from caring in the wrong way. If we are hated, pardon me, if the hatred that we receive from the world is for the sake of Christ, if it is because we are followers of Christ, because we believe in his word, because we stand on biblical convictions, because we are refusing to go along with what the world is doing and celebrating, then we should not be bothered by it. We should not be bothered by opposition we receive for that reason. But according to Jesus, notice what he says. We ought to rejoice and be glad. Now in our world of cancel culture, virtue signaling, and total tolerance, it really doesn't take much to find yourself on the receiving end of the world's hatred. As secular culture and the kingdom of darkness continue their tolerance crusades into every area of life, we will likely find out, if we haven't already, that it doesn't take very much to be targeted. It's not only the people that are doing the cultural engagement 
that are taking heat. Right? It's not only those who are outspoken who are facing opposition. Simply stating your commitment to raise and educate your children according to biblical principles and to teach them biblical sexual ethics is already more than enough to get a bullseye painted on your back. For many entrepreneurs, refusing to bake a cake or take pictures for a quote-unquote gay wedding, or for workers to refuse to set up barricades for a pride parade, very many different things can all make life difficult at work. And so given the current trajectory of secular culture, it looks like it's only a matter of time before every business that refuses to put up the rainbow sticker on their window may face some form of persecution. So we need to understand, given the world in which we live, given the time in which we live, this kind of opposition, this kind of hatred is likely coming for most of us. And since this is the case, we must be ready for it, and we must have decided beforehand how we are going to respond. And so we need the words of our Lord. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Blessed are you when others revile you, when they mock you, insult you, reproach you. Blessed are you when they call you names, when they slander you, when they malign your character, when they say evil and untrue things about you. Blessed are you when they persecute you. The Greek word here, the yoko, when it means to pursue you, to go after you with ill intent, uh, attempting to put you to flight. So, blessed are you when they persecute you, when they bully you, when they treat you poorly, when they fire you from your job, when you are ostracized from your friends because of your commitment to Christ. Do not care in the wrong way. Insults that you receive for the sake of Christ should roll off of you like water off the duck's back. We need to learn to think presuppositionally. Ask the question, what's beneath that insult? Right? They declare that you're full of hate simply for standing on biblical sexual ethics. Why? What is it that's behind that? What's underlying that, beneath that? How are these people, how are they defining good and evil? How are they defining love and hate? What is their condemnation of you stemming from? We must understand it is simply an outworking of their worldview. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now the gods of secularism are particularly nasty and bloodthirsty demon gods. Look around and you see secularism truly is the culture of death. They revel in the slaughter of the unborn. 
They chemically and physically castrate and sterilize and call it gender affirmation. They celebrate sexual perversion, calling good and beautiful what God has called abomination. Romans 3.13, we can say it's true of all unbelievers, but especially of this culture. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The curses and taunts of those whose moral compasses are completely broken should carry no weight in our minds. To be called a bad person by those who are literally celebrating evil should not bother us. As God said of Nineveh, it is true of our culture, they do not know their right hand from their left. They call good evil and evil good. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They look on righteousness and declare that evil. They look on the love of God given in the gospel and call that a message of hate. Brothers and sisters, insults received for Christ's sake should not hurt. Do not care in the wrong way. Do not let them steer you, silence you, or embarrass you. For blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So what is to be the Christian response to being hated for the sake of Christ? Well, Jesus says that we are to walk around the corner just out of sight, chuckle a little chuckle, shrug our shoulders in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, and dance a little jig. Celebrate and exult. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Jesus uses two words here back to back. The first is rejoice. Uh, the second word is in Greek, ad aleo, right? He is not describing simply a feeble attempt to not break down into tears, right? But positively, it is not just that we are to attempt to squeak out a little smile through the pain. We are to be exceedingly glad. Agaleo in the Greek, the helps word study defines it as this. Catch this. Getting so glad, one jumps in celebration. To exult, to boast for being experientially joyful. That's what Jesus says is to be our response to this kind of persecution. The story goes of a grandfather who said to his family one evening at supper that there is no, no sense in dying with a good reputation. Now puzzled, one of the grandchildren asked, Grandpa, don't you have a good reputation? And thoughtfully, Grandpa replied, Better than it ought to be. As Doug Wilson put it, we must aspire to the great honor 
of the right kind of bad reputation. Rejoice and be glad. Celebrate and exult. Jesus then gives us two reasons for why we ought to rejoice and be exceedingly glad when we face this kind of thing. First one he says is this, For great is your reward in heaven. Now that is an interesting reason that Jesus gives. And I am convinced that it is one that we do not spend nearly enough time thinking about. As a result, at least speaking personally, I don't think this functions in the way that it ought to. We don't think on it, and so it doesn't, doesn't motivate us in the way that Jesus says it should. Right? We typically would think of heaven itself as the reward. Right? You think if the base package is the full enjoying of God for all eternity, how could we even fathom something on top of that? And yet, notice Jesus here appeals to the idea of heavenly rewards as something which ought to motivate us so strongly that the prospect of receiving those rewards would cause us to jump for joy in the face of slander, persecution, and ridicule. Now that's powerful. So what then could heavenly rewards be? Again, given how this concept functions in Jesus' argument, I think this idea is worth lingering on. So John Piper suggests in drawing from Luke 6.38 that it could be referring to greater and deeper capacities for joy. Luke 6.38 uh, says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So in heaven, everybody will be full. Uh, everyone's cup will be full and overflowing. But his reading of this is that one of the rewards is that you would have a deeper cup. As Piper puts it, everyone is full in heaven, but some cups are larger. Some containers are larger than others, close quote. So his suggestion here is that the reward, heavenly rewards, refers to a deeper capacity for joy. A fullness of joy that is in some way deeper, more robust, more glorious, and more full than what we would have had otherwise. Another suggestion here comes from C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. Lewis writes about what it means for Christians to receive the eternal weight of glory, spoken of in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul writes there, the light momentary affliction preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And so Lewis posits that essentially the weight of glory is to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Lewis writes this, The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall survive that examination, referring to the judgment on the last day, shall find approval and shall please 
God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. When we consider that God made us for himself, when we consider that our chief end, our highest purpose as human beings, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, I think Lewis's suggestion here becomes quite plausible. What greater reward could be offered, what greater motivation could be asked for than the idea that God would take true delight in us? For us to truly please God, to receive in some way the expression of God's pleasure in us, that he would look on us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. For the redeemed saint, for the heart that loves God, heart, soul, and mind, this may be among the greatest rewards that we can possibly fathom. And so whether or not this is specifically what Jesus meant by heavenly rewards in this section, we will never do wrong if we are motivated by the desire to please God. That is always a good thing. And so this is the kind of thing that strengthens Christians as they would prepare to endure suffering. Do you face trials for the sake of Christ? Does it appear as if your biblical convictions may soon cost you something? Take heart, for your reward is great in heaven. Calvin writes, a remedy is at hand that we may not be overwhelmed by unjust reproaches. For as soon as we raise our minds to heaven, we there behold vast grounds of joy which dispel sadness. Your master is pleased by your faithfulness. You are storing up treasure in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. And whatever that may mean, even if we can't give a detailed answer, we are to know that it is very, very good. So good, in fact, that we would jump for joy if we could even begin to comprehend it. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus then gives a second reason for why we are to rejoice when we are mistreated for his sake. Verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. <clears throat> the faithful servants of the true and living God can always expect a similar welcome from the kingdom of darkness. 
when those who hate God <clears throat> and are living in rebellion to him give to you the same response that the wicked men of old gave to the righteous prophets of old, that should give you great assurance that you are, in fact, on the right side of things. We are receiving the same treatment from the world that the prophets, and of course our Lord Jesus Christ himself, received. And so, far from causing us to despair, or to become saddened or depressed as the hate mail starts flowing in from the world, we ought to recognize that this means things are moving exactly according to plan. Maybe not our plan, not the way we would have drawn things up, but in the good and uh, ever-omnipotent and perfect wisdom of God, this is exactly what he planned for his people. Opposition, slander, hatred, and persecution from the right people is actually a sign of faithfulness. And the reason, once again, is because of the spiritual realities that underlie our interactions in the world. We must remember we are wrestling with the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Now, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. As we shine the light of the gospel into the darkness, those who hate the light will respond in hate to us. As we live in this world as representatives and ambassadors for Christ, those who hate Christ will respond in hate to us. And in fact, if we don't ever receive anything like this, it may be a sign of unfaithfulness. Luke 6, verse 26, Jesus gives the flip side to this point where he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you when, people, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The false prophets spoke smooth words to the people. The false prophets were willing to give the people what their itching ears wanted to hear. And as a result, they received praise and commendation from the world. Just imagine, if you lived in Sodom, and the men of Sodom were big fans of you, loved the messages you had for them, there is a decent chance you've been hiding your light under a bowl. Brothers and sisters, we must put our fear of man to death. We must not care in the wrong way what the world thinks of us. Now, I've titled this sermon, How to Be Hated. And if I could answer that question with a single word, it would be this. Joyfully.
joyfully. We must overcome the notion that facing serious consequences means that we must respond with mourning or with anxiety. Now, as a church, we do aim to take very seriously the weighty matters of life. We are not flippant or casual about our honor for God, His Word, our own pursuit of sanctification, or the very real spiritual battles that we are in. Evil is very real. We have enemies who truly hate us, and there may be real and serious consequences that we face for our faithfulness to Christ. Now the danger we must avoid is that in our effort to take these things seriously, that they would produce in us a dour, gloomy, and overly self-serious demeanor. Although we recognize the serious dangers, the serious consequences, and the weightiness of these matters, we must not give in to the temptation to then become shrill, fussy, and sullen in response to the challenges that we face. Our Lord has commanded us, and has done so quite directly and forcefully. How are we to respond when hated? Rejoice and be glad, exceedingly glad. The story we are in is a story of victory. It's what Peter Lightheart calls deep comedy. In the classic sense, if the tragedy is a story in which the characters end off in a worse condition than they began, then a comedy in the classical sense is a story in which they would have a happy ending. Lightheart argues that the Christian view of history is a deep comedy, one in which, quote, the happy ending is uncontaminated by any fear of future tragedy, and the characters do not only return to the pleasant state that they were in before the crisis, but rather they flourish far beyond previous measure and circumstances. And that is exactly right. God is in the process of redeeming his fallen creation. And so for those who are in Christ, whatever the tragic turns of our lives and stories may be, the grand story that God is telling, of which our lives are a part, is one in which the best is yet to come. It is a story in which all the schemes and machinations of the enemy unwittingly serve God's own purposes. Just consider the supreme example. Satan was behind the crucifixion. Right? Satan entered Judas and caused him to betray Christ so that he would be crucified. And as we know, it was through this that God was redeeming fallen humanity. Christ was taking the curse upon himself by becoming a curse for us. He died so that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. Jesus rose, the tomb is empty, and because of this we have the assurance of a happy ending. The most evil thing that ever happened 
the murder of God the Son proved to be the very thing that God was using and had planned to redeem his fallen creation. So we should trust God when he tells us that all things are working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He has proven himself. And so even the slander, persecution, lies, and evil that are falsely spoken against us now, we are to understand, serves our good. As Augustine supposedly said, when our enemies abuse us, they are unwillingly adding to our honors. Death gives way to resurrection, darkness to light, defeat to victory, the night to the dawn, sorrow to joy, persecution to heavenly rewards. This is our story, this is our song, and may not only be a story that we tell and sing, but one which we would live out. May our joy be overflowing. May it show the world around us that we have something deep, good, true, and beautiful. What we have is the best news that anyone will ever hear. That through the work of Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our proclamation to the world is that death has been defeated, evil has been dealt its death blow, the curse is being rolled back, and reconciliation with God is available to all who will repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Our Lord has then taught us that all things are working together for our good, even the persecutions and troubles that we face. How ought we to adorn that doctrine? Right, if that's our message, what kind of living would put that message on display, that people would see it and know it? We would adorn it with our joy, with our deep joy, our overflowing joy. There are many idols in the land. There is darkness to confront, strongholds to destroy, and we have been taught to expect that the results of the clashes with Satan's kingdom will be various forms of persecution. So we do not make light of this. For many Christians throughout history, and many even in our own day, this has meant true suffering and even death for the name of Christ. But like the apostles, Christians throughout the centuries have faced suffering and death with an attitude that makes no sense to a world that does not know the glories of Christ and the hope of resurrection. Acts 5.41 After the disciples were beaten and commanded not to speak in the name of Christ anymore, Scripture says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let us engage with the darkness. Let us shine our light into it. 
Let us hack away at the idols. Let us proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and that salvation is available in him. May we proclaim that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that he is the savior, that he is the conqueror of sin, death, and Satan. And if we face suffering for his name, let us rejoice that we have been counted worthy of so great an honor. Let us be aware of what is still at stake. Let us not be flippant or casual about our battles, especially those we face with our own sin and desires of our flesh. But as we fight, as we engage, as we seek to bring every area of life under the feet of Christ, let us do so with smiles on our faces and songs in our hearts. I'll leave you this morning with 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed, is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison.